and welcome to another episode of Reproducibility. I'm Sophia Crevel and I'm joined today, as always, by Amy Auburn and Sam Parsons, who are in Cambridge and Oxford, respectively now, right? Yeah, we're not recording together anymore, eh, Sam? <sighs> yeah, it feels Can't weird. Can't see your pretty face. <laughs> <laughs> why did that sound so ominous yeah i don't know i feel really creeped out now um, <laughs> sam um, has left the group chat yeah <laughs> so I'm, I'm done no more sam of the is secretly happy i'm i'm not there anymore you're like yes she's moved oh, oh i'm sure that's not true no i'm i'm in a slowly shrinking group all on my Larry. Um, You're Larry? Yeah, I understood died of malaria. <laughs> all, all on my Larry. Is that slang? It's slang for slang. Larry Lona, yeah. Okay, there we go. I learned something In new. British We're not native speaker enough for that, Amy. No, I sometimes... My, my partner has a list of things I say which are actually not very British where he says, people then know you're not British. <laughs> As if anyway. that was something bad. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm classic, kind of proud. Classic Brit. <laughs> oh my God, we can't slag off people now. Boris Johnson might deport me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. For the record, Amy is uh, very loyal to uh, the crown. <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> anyway. He pays the best. Okay, uh... Anyway, let's get back on track. Um, uh, how are you guys? How are you doing? Uh, yeah, I'm good. Uh, In oh, sorry, Sam, go ahead. Uh, no, yeah, first week of term, always fun. Meeting yeah, me new a... students, um, interviewing for a new postdoc in the lab, so that's good. Mm. Yeah, yeah, we're at first week of term here as well. I actually look over the kind of park where the fair is for all the new students, where they can sign mm. up for a cool society. So I've been seeing a lot of, of new faces and excitedness. Um, and the new PhD students started uh, in our institute on Monday as well. So we, we just had a, a lab lunch welcoming a, a new PhD student. So yeah, a lot of changes. Wow, that's pretty cool. And that's yeah. such a good segue into our topic today thank you for that setup uh you're welcome um so yeah we are our plan for today is to um talk about starting a phd um and essentially i'll be taking this as an excuse to ask you two lots of questions um and to ask you for advice because of course i've just started a phd um i don't know why of course but anyway um so yeah let's get right into it um can i just say some one thing oh, is yeah. that we naturally need to note here is that sam and i did our phd at the same institution and even though it wasn't in the same area we're kind of related so if we say anything that you our listeners disagree with or would have had a much better perspective do please tell us over twitter we'd love to hear from you because naturally we will not give the whole perspective no over yeah, so technically this is starting a PhD in psychology and related yeah. fields. Because, of course, I'm not doing a PhD in psychology, but close enough, I guess, as meta We'll science. start to keep it general. Okay, nice. Cool. 
Um, well, yeah, so I, I would like to start with the cheesiest possible beginning, um, which is, so if you could go back in time and tell yourself some, some to give yourself some advice at the very beginning of your PhD, what would it be? Go on, Amy, you go first. Hey, I was waiting for you to go first. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, I started the PhD um, not always feeling like I wasn't really knowing what I was doing. Um, and I'd come from an academic environment where um, I always kind of just try to find the best way to succeed in the current incentive system. You know, in exams, it would mean sitting down and figuring out exactly what I had to do to get a high mark. Um, that's often not doing the best work or knowing the most things. It's being very specific about what you know and how you write it and how you communicate it. Um, so I think I approached the PhD in the first two years in completely the wrong way. Uh, that I felt very pressurized to be productive from the very beginning. And I felt like I needed to adhere to the incentive structures that I felt existed in my area. And I think that's the two things that I would, I would tell myself is the first thing is that progress isn't linear. Progress is inherently nonlinear. So you might have three years where you don't produce anything of value, but then in your last half a year, you do produce amazing work. Or you might be a person who produces a bit every every couple of weeks or months, or you do a lot at the beginning, or you have a slump in the middle, and, and it's you, you can't think of it as something linear. So if you're sitting at your desk looking busy or trying to look busy now, it doesn't mean that you're a failure. Um, and I think that's that's the first thing I would tell myself. And then the second thing would be that, um, yeah, that incentives change and the incentives that kind of would have helped you be successful in science 10 years ago, just publishing a lot, publishing in especially high impact journals or Thing that naturally they're still out there and they're still influential, but you're only going to do that if you do something that you really like, if you do something that you're passionate about, but also that you can believe and trust in. Uh, and that you, when people tell you, oh, you shouldn't have learned this new coding skill for the last half a year because that that's not going to give you a paper, that that's very, very short-sighted. Um, yeah, that would be the two things. It's quite good. Nice. So progress is linear and sort of... I don't know. Yeah, the second one is a bit crappy. Maybe Sam can clear it up with a better Um, one of his. I think... I thought that was really good. Um, So mine's kind of similar, I guess. Um, I actually wrote a blog post on this that came out a couple of months back, I think, um, for the Psychology Postgrad Society in the UK. Yeah. that we could link to mainly because they they asked this pretty much exact question on Twitter and then basically no one responded. So I thought maybe it, it's the sort of question that deserves a lot more time um, spent on it. So I kind of put something together. Um, I mean, naturally, I injected the you should all do open science into it because that's the kind of moany bastard I am. 
Um, so, so it was kind of, I, I guess my advice is two parts then, or like what I would tell myself to do. And the, the first one would be to, I guess, invest in learning about kind of openness, transparency, reproducibility, um, which could be as simple as actually reading, reading your paper, Sophia, seven easy steps into open science. Well, that's our paper. Yeah, that's true. That is our paper. But she all three of us on this. But it was v- very our much baby. Pressure, <laughs> Oh god, um, delete me now. <laughs> but like, I I sort of see that as a a platform for the main thing that I kind of wish that I'd had uh, a more stronger perspective on, and I think it kind of echoes what Amy was saying that. I think more often than not, we we sort of give in to fears about the way that we think things are going to be in academia or things that we think might, for some abstract, unknowable reason, kind of harm our career prospects, whether that is the, oh, but I could spend this time putting a paper together and collecting new data. Um, so... I kind of wrote this piece and I'm still trying to kind of get my head around exactly what I mean by this, but I think we, we worry too much about, as Amy said, the, the incentive structures. So you normally we sit there and say, I need as many papers as humanly possible because reasons. Um, when actually the things that are going to get you there are more likely doing best practice. Um, I mean, it's very easy to run a lot of studies and collect a lot of data and you can kind of go through a whole PhD with the attitude of, I need to, I need to collect loads of data and do all this and do all the things. But then by the end of it, you, you have a load of data that you've not looked at or it's not particularly good quality because you've not invested the time into actually really kind of creating and curating a, a decent data set. Um, I mean, the, the obvious example is something like, I, I don't have time to do a registered report, which is one that gets quite a lot of airtime. And you kind of think, well, actually, probably do, assuming that you're kind of early on in the PhD process. Um, because what you're actually doing is front-loading a lot of the work. Um, you're also adding a, a an accepted in principle paper to your CV, which is better for your career than having three studies that are various stages of in prep. Um, So actually kind of properly engaging in a lot of these practices is going to be beneficial for you. Um, I think think we need to put aside a lot of the shooting ourselves in the foot kind of mindsets towards a lot of these practices. And my kind of recent experience being on a selection committee kind of only confirms that to me because we had 11 applicants and none of them were, they were all great applicants, but none of them were the, the ideal, um, kind of like golden child that we imagine when we think about the person that we're competing against for a job. Sorry if you're listening here. I I mean it, they, they were they're all good applicants and we're going to end up with someone amazing. And I think anyone that doesn't end up working in the lab, they were all great. What, what I mean is that we, 
so for instance when when i was applying for phds i don't know if it was the same for you um amy applying for fellowships that because you have to write so many applications and because you know that you're competing against hundreds of people you sort of imagine this perfect person that is going to get the job that has 10 times as many publications as you that has xyz laundry list of things that that sort of put you at a disadvantage and actually i think the playing field is a lot more level than we give it credit for so to sort of overly worry that doing one thing especially if that one thing is doing better science is going to somehow kind of harm your career prospects then i think we're worrying about the wrong things um and we maybe sort of need to you know sorry there you go no like i i just if i were i think my second point was quite similar to your first and kind of general point is that you're focusing on saying you know we should invest time in learning reproducible research processes because in the end it's beneficial, it's efficiency, and and actually it doesn't shoot yourself in the foot too much because we're still all pretty much on the same playing field. Um, I think I personally wouldn't would give that advice in a slightly different way. So I'd say I wouldn't. Maybe this makes me a bad open scientist, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't focus on transparency or reproducibility, I'd I'd focus, if I were giving advice to me four years ago, I would have focused on just skill, learn skills that are future skills. You know, think about what people at the cutting edge are doing of your field and beyond. And think of the skill, what skills you want to learn to do such research whether that's programming, whether that's registered reports, whether that's kind of reproducibility, GitHub, programming tasks, neuroimaging, whatever. But I think that I really didn't understand that a PhD is an apprenticeship. You know, you're not going to create masterful pieces of artwork if you've just started your apprenticeship and being an artist. And your job when you enter that studio is to learn the ropes is to learn the tools and the tricks and to look at what other people are doing and try to figure out where will this field of art be in the next 10 or 20 years. And I think that was the same for us. And a lot of the beginning of my PhD was backward looking, you know, I try to produce as much as possible and hope that it gets into somewhere worthwhile. But actually as a PhD student, you have this unique position to really think about the future and to invest time in, in learning skills. And I think if if you do that, and at the current moment, you don't invest in reproducible research practices, then I'd be a bit confused because I do think that's the future and that's where the field is going. And if you don't know how to do it at the end of your PhD, now you're not equipped for the future. But it might also be other things as well. So I would, I would put it under a more general umbrella of kind of – yeah, is, is how take that time to think about what skills you need to be a psychologist of 2020, 2030, 2040, not of 1980. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's my rant over. No, I think that's good. I think like, I think our points kind of work together. If that makes sense. I think yeah. we kind of have the same, the same perspective, like, a PhD isn't and should never be a like 
paper churning exercise um, because then all it's going to be is, well, it's very unlikely to be all extremely good quality. Um, and if you can focus on skill development, then that's ultimately that's also the thing if we're talking about like getting a postdoc or getting an industry job or anything really at that career stage it's the skills that are being drawn to it mm. um and again like that that's again my experience on the selection committee is it's it's going to be the person that is the most that has the most appropriate skill set for the project that is going to end up getting the role rather than it being the person that has the longest publication list um and that's and that's the same feedback that we got at the um uh reproducibility workshop in january was exactly that advice from more senior people um across various fields actually um that yeah they're, they're going to be looking for people that can pre-register a study that can post data up that can kind of help with that side of things because that's going to be the skill set that's required for future research oh, of course. and i also think oh. that i oh, go ahead no i mean, so, I mean no, no, you, you go ahead with yours first <laughs> no i just wanted to interject with another thing that when I was doing job applications and, and a bit before that Dorothy Bishop at, at Oxford often told me is that you always need a get out of jail card. You know, you always need to know what you would do if academia doesn't work out. And a lot of, you know, for me, that has all been through programming, knowing that if I learn certain skills, they will be useful in jobs outside of just academic research, if that's industry research or or anything else, really. Um, because only... And then that can give you confidence, right? That it, like you're not, you're not dependent on academia kind of working out. Yeah, you need to be able to take risks. You need to be able to say, I want to learn this. This is yeah. going to take me a quarter, you know, three quarters of a year and I won't produce anything. Uh, but I, I'm confident this will this will work out. Or you you see some sort of trend coming and you think that's going to be the new big thing and I'm, I'm going to ride the wave now and hope it gets bigger. And then you'll have the perfect, you know, opportunity to do research. And these are all risks you have to take. And it's very hard to take risks if if you know that this needs to work out. If not, I don't, I don't have a backup plan. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, both like yeah, both both of your advice is yeah, really nice. Thank you. But of course, especially the sort of like sort of the the last few things that we talked about are already like, you know, way, way further into the future for people starting their PhDs now. Um so like I mean of course it's important to think about that. But I would like to briefly come back to like sort of the the start to like, like actually starting the PhD because um I don't know. Like it's it's obviously like sort of a a huge shift from um, sort of un undergrad or, or a master's degree or whatever to then, but like also but also not a huge shift, right? As in like it's it's different, but also not anyway. So basically, my basically my I, I would like to know um, what sort of like how how you felt at the start of your PhD and what kind of what is what is meant to happen. In the, in the first couple of months or the first year of your PhD, um, like what? I mean, so we've already, of course, touched on education and things, but um, and I'm not sure if this is 
super generalizable but kind of like what mm. yeah what what is the start of a phd um i guess so i guess to to cons uh to put some context in, I guess partly it depends on where, obviously it's going to differ by field and location and also to some extent previous experience. So I, I've kind of known people that have worked as an RA in a lab and then started a PhD and then their kind of PhD is basically continuing their RA work. Um, so that's going to be very different. Whereas I guess in general, especially the first few months, my my thing would be to try and read as much as humanly possible. I got lost in that, though. Like, I don't know. Like, I when I started my PhD, I, I wasn't really as assigned on a project, so I had some ideas, but naturally they were crap because, like, <laughs> I, I like, didn't, you know, like, you're, you're not in the field yet, so how should you really think these things through? And... I don't know how I would have started better because it, for me, it was just really hard. And like, I just, yeah, I, tr I read a lot, but I don't, I haven't, like, I didn't use any of it. Like it helped me get a basis, but it was difficult for me to really get a hang of a literature from, from scratch. Um, because there's so, so much. much, I think, I don't know what, I think every PhD start is different, but I think it is a massive change. And I, I wish I would have been a bit kinder to myself. Um, but yeah, reading is a good way to start. I try to look busy by reading. <laughs> <laughs> but I think for me, what, what was a massive change, which kind of happened at the end of my first year, is that I started realizing that the academic business, you know, the job that you have is very different to how I felt my job was as an undergrad or a student before I started my PhD, because there I, I could always, I knew when I was doing work, you know, I was doing work when I was in the library, I was doing work when I was reading a textbook, I was doing work in lectures. And I kind of felt like going into my PhD I had that conception, like I have to be doing work. And for example, having a coffee with somebody in the area is not doing work because that's not reading or writing or understanding. Um, you know, if I take a break because I'm really tired, that's not doing work. But I think when I got into the later years of my PhD, especially, I started seeing that just as much as work as other things you know if I'm talking to people in my field if I'm meeting people to get you know I might get that really important new idea so that is work you know if I if I can't work in the afternoon and I'm really tired and I want to go for a walk then that walk is work because academia is so much about being creative and and, and naturally you, you sometimes just have to churn out the hours of kind of on the computer work work but a lot of the best times or best ideas come at completely different times and when you've been taking care of yourself and when you've been sleeping properly. And, and so I don't know, I, I, now I see a lot of my work just being also a lot of my life. Like it's been, yeah, it's very difficult to say, but things like having coffee with other people in my research area or in other research areas, I would now definitely see as work. And I used to not see it as work and stress about kind of taking time 
off work, which I not consider work. Anyways, I say, I'm saying the, the word work way too much. <laughs> um, Everyone's stressed out. Yeah. Oh, no. God. No, but I mean, I, I really like this bit of advice. I think you've given me this before. I'm not sure yes. if this was on the podcast. No, not on or... the podcast. But I think, yeah, I was but saying, I, I keep on having this rant being like, self-care is not self-care. Self-care is just part of doing my job. <laughs> it's so nice. I really like that as an attitude. Like but was, if, oh. if we were Olympic, if we were Olympic athletes, people would be like, you need to eat properly and sleep properly and, you know, have a good balance of things. And like, come on, you need to do the same. You know, you are also kind of trying to do something with your body as much as uh, mostly with your mind. But yeah. Anyways, I'll stop. I mean, it's sort of, I guess, like like uh, sort of high, highly performing sports people, we're trying to do this, like, we're not, not the same, but like we're trying to perform highly in academia, I guess, maybe. Yeah, well, I, I, I just... To the Olympians? <laughs> no, I, I think I just see because my family is quite sporty and just the amount of thought that goes into taking care of your body because your body is the only thing that can let you do that work is insane or the amount of kind of care that that a lot of people who are dependent on their body give their body for for work um if that is doing a specific sport or being a dancer or um being a musician and i think that as academics um that is also kind of part of it um, and naturally we all function differently and we all have different limits and, and so, but, uh, a lot, there's a lot more I now can count under my job description than I did at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I don't think it's like athletes also have to, you, know, you also think about their mind, right? Yeah. And then <laughs> isn't there like, isn't there like a runner who does lots of meditation exercises or something anyway? <laughs> I don't know. Um, so I like I, I like this analogy. I've, I've decided that it works. Yeah, maybe it's just me being able to slag off. It's like right. I do love the the afternoon nap. So uh, maybe that's just me giving giving me a, uh, allowing me to do that. Well, I mean, I guess like so it does it does tie into this question of of whatever work life balance and how you how you set this up, which might be an important thing, which I guess is an important thing to do at the start of your PhD if. Well, I mean, I guess even if you've done that before during studies, during, during your studies, um, assuming that you haven't done a, um, a research assistantship or something in between, um, because it's changed, I guess you, I guess at the start of PhD, you need to set up a good work-life balance. And so it seems like your, your advice is to just kind of have all everything being work, but also that means everything is life or something, a really zen. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I Sam, do you have a better? I my work life balance is is kind of different than most people's. So I don't know if if you've got better uh, idea of how to be balanced. I'm not really sure. Mine goes up and down. So I've had periods where I've I've sort of had to do a lot of work in my own time, usually around like applications or um or even just where I've had side projects um, that have been very much just my own kind of little brainchild um, or that I'm working on outside of like the work that I'm paid for. But 
I guess I'd almost say some of those, I almost feel the opposite to what Amy's just said in that <laughs> I sort of wouldn't class some of them as work. Um, just purely because like sometimes you just get, you really want to look into something and you're kind of engaged and it doesn't feel like a grind. It feels like you just, you're hitting that, I guess, flow state to be overly positive psychology about it. Um, and you sort of, I don't know, you find something that you, you're enjoying and you just want to do more. Um, and I guess for, for a lot of people in the sort of open science reproducibility community, that probably covers a lot of stuff as well. Um, because a lot of this isn't stuff that we're paid for. It's stuff that we kind of feel compelled to do. Um, but I've also had to be a lot stricter with myself about work-life balance in general. Um, in, in the sense that for, for a long time, I was quite bad about it and I'd be stressed about work. So I'd bring work home to do work at home. And then I had to do more work because I was stressed about work. Um, but it's, it's not good for relationships to do that. Um, and I think one, one of the, and not good for you and, and not good for you, but it was, it was definitely, uh, a big kind of shift in my, in my perspective where like, if, if I'm going to sacrifice something, to be able to have a better work-life balance, I'm going to sacrifice work because sort of, frankly, my, my wife and my kind of future family eventually mean a hell of a lot more to me than however much I like my research work. Mm. Um, like they're, they're not sacrificable. Um, so as much as sometimes that's kind of meant that I've had to turn around and say, look, I, I can't work on, this or that at the minute i'm kind of good with saying do you know what my pro that's this these are my priorities so if you don't agree then tough yeah like i think mine i think it's interesting to see how we have different definitions of work because i think even open science stuff like i would class this podcast as work <laughs> even though i love it you know it's like but um i think that aside but I still find that really interesting. Um, I think my, I don't know, I don't know if I, it should be advice or not, um, is the first thing is to say no and say no a lot and, and practice saying no. Oh, Christ, yes. Like people will try to rope you into doing stuff because you're at the beginning of your PhD and you look like you have nothing to do. If it doesn't help you, say no. You know, you don't have to be everywhere. You don't have to go to every single event. You don't have to do everything. I think it's a lot of keeping your plate clear so you can fill it up with the best possible project. It's like going to a buffet. You don't start, you know, just because there's dishes at the beginning, you know, you should probably wait till you get to the better dish at the end. I don't know. Maybe I go to different buffets for other people. <laughs> Um, I just, but, I, I just, I, when I go to buffets, I just get all of the food. But I mean, like, what's like, how, how do you know what's 
helps you and how do you know what like what what is the best thing <laughs> no, I, I agree with that and like what what is even good what is enough <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know? i think it's kind of up, up to you in a lot of ways like mm. you have to sort of find your own your own balance like a good bit of advice i have seen is the like if i was asked to do this tomorrow would i agree to it yeah. <laughs> so however far away it is, at some point you're going to have the the two-day deadline where you think, oh, shit, I need to actually put some effort into this now. Um, and if you're not willing to do that now, then you're not going to be willing to do that in two months' time. Yeah, I think I think the main thing for me is, like, does it excite you? Does it help you get to certain goals that you have? I think the biggest thing that I learn is don't just say yes because you want to please certain people. Yeah. I think I see a lot of people around me saying yes to things because they get asked to do that by, you know, eminent professors or people you think that, you know, they have to like me. But I think those people only get to their eminent positions if they have been fighting for their cause for, you know, decades. And they've said no a lot. And I feel like I've said no to many things throughout my PhD. And I think I never had a person kind of be annoyed at me for doing that like naturally maybe a bit but there I, I think there's never been a relationship breakdown mm-hmm. most of the time people are more annoyed if you say yes and then you don't actually have the capacity to do things or you slow the project down or you do bad work um so I think saying no and, and talking to people about you know somebody offering you a certain project or asking you to do something or whether you want to do something and and weighing it up with other people often helps as well because it quickly crystallizes whether whether uh it's a good opportunity or not yeah but i'm probably making it sound easier than it is (laughs) oh it's definitely not easy um i i just add to that and say i i would advise anyone to be very wary of of certain activities being described as opportunities or (laughs) extra cv boosting uh whatever because quite often oh god that that sounds like spam well yeah um well i mean usually it's legitimate things right and in fairness a lot of you can agree to a lot of a lot of things whether it's a little bit of extra teaching whether it's a little bit of uh, an extra talk here and there, whether it's being on a committee, whether it's like there's hundreds of things you can get involved in, but you sort of have to weigh up the ones that are actually gonna, that you're actually interested in being involved in or are gonna be useful in some way. And I think more often than not, and I'm trying not to be overly cynical here, there are a lot of things that need to be done to keep a department running. And a lot of that gets thrown into either the, the free labor or the we can't pay people for this, so we're going to call it a CV boosting opportunity. Um, mm. I don't know how to say that without being cynical. I'm not trying to be an asshole about this, but there are a lot of things that are advertised as being good for your like career opportunities. And actually the trade-off between how much time you have to put into certain things versus the actual extra line on your CV, which 
uh, like ultimately maybe won't actually make any difference is something mm. that you have to be quite critical when you weigh up. Yeah. Um, I think, I think the, the last thing about work life balance is that again, things aren't static or linear. I think we all go through phases where we're more productive, where we have projects we're really passionate about and phases where we need to recover or where we're worried about other things, if that's professional or personal or anything in between. Um, and it's, it's adapting to that. So if at the beginning of your PhD, you don't have that much to do, you know, it's not, I spent a lot of my first two years working a very standard nine to five and, and going home straight at five and, and then doing other things. That was very different in my third and fourth year where it was more that I worked a lot during the week but didn't work weekends. Um, while now I'm doing a lot less just because I'm, I don't have the energy and I'm recovering from those two years. Uh, I don't think at some points we always get to a point where maybe we haven't had the balance right. And I do, I mm -hmm. feel that in myself, you know, I always say I kept the water on boil, but it's slightly overboiled now, you know, so I need to tune it down and I need to recalibrate. But for me, that's not, it's not the same every month. It changes from week to week. It changes from month to month, how much sleep I need changes um, and everything around it. So I think, what I would tell myself at the beginning of my PhD is you don't have to make yourself busy if you're not busy, you know, <laughs> like it'll come. So don't worry about doing, you know, going home at a very normal time because there's a lot to take in and there are a lot of changes. Um, but also don't beat yourself up if all of a sudden you are doing a bit more just, but then be self-reflective. And if, if the, you know, if you do start noticing these small changes in happiness, satisfaction, whatever, however you figure out your own balance, then, you know, it is about then taking that step back. Uh, but I wouldn't be able to give, you know, a one size fits all, even just for myself, because it does change all the time. Oh, that's so beautiful. <laughs> Maybe at, at this point then, very fittingly, take a little break and return um, in a minute. You are listening to Reproducibility, serving you discussion of important issues in science and psychology, one mug of tea at a time. Do you like the taste of our podcast? Give us a follow on Twitter at Reproducibility, rate us on iTunes, and tell other early career researchers about us. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter or via our email address, which is reproducibility at gmail.com. Over the next weeks, we will also release some specialty flavors, small podcast episodes talking to a wide range of psychological researchers, especially awesome ECRs that we want you to meet. If you have someone you think should come on the show, send us a message. Welcome back from our break. Um, we've had a little team discussion and very fittingly uh, uh, to our discussions about, uh, well, to the, the advice that Amy and Sam have been giving about work-life balance and saying no, <laughs> we've decided that we'll turn this into two episodes and we'll actually end at this point for this episode um, and <laughs> do another episode. Yeah, goodbye, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we'll create a second episode.
my tears run out with the with the rest of the things that we wanted to talk about. Yeah, I'm ready for my uh, nice amount of tea that I need to drink to refuel from this grueling discussion, <laughs> Sophia. True. Yeah, it hasn't been discussed. It has been very helpful advice. But yeah, then um, I guess um, we'll leave this episode at this point, and then um, we'll have another advice episode on starting your PhD um, with some more. Th- more topics um in the next episode well thank you for the advice so far i've already I'm, i already feel uh, very what's it i don't think there's, a, there's an adjective for this <laughs> wholesome. wholesome exactly it's so wholesome. i feel very loved exactly great advice i hope it's been useful to some other people starting their phds too otherwise it has been for me <laughs> so yay <laughs> okay then yeah see you next episode Bye. 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 <laughs> <laughs>